Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. I'm going to start with a poem today that I found particularly apt for this lesson, all right? Because we're speaking about, we're going to be speaking about at least, the prophets as poets. So, because they were, like the, the, especially Hosea. Hosea is written in a very poetic fashion. So this is, this is definitely apt. James Macaulay, he was an Australian Christian um, poet that, I guess, late... 20th century, died in, 19, in the 1970s. So, that each thing is a word requiring us to speak it, from the ants to the quasar, from clouds to ocean floor, the meaning not ours but found, in the mind deeply submissive, to the grammar of existence, the syntax of the real, so that alien is changed to human, thing into thinking. For the world's bare tokens we pay gold coins, Stamped with the king's image, and poems are prophecy of a new heaven and earth, a rumor of resurrection. See? And poems are prophecy, particularly apt. As he's, and this he's dealing with, obviously, God speaking the world into existence. Everything is a spoken word, if you will. God spoke, and it came to be. He upholds all things with the word of his power. And he has given us his word, and now we have to look into how we should read it. We were starting, well, last week, we went through just an introduction to the book of the Twelve, right? The Twelve Minor Prophets. We talked about the Hebrew Bible, how it's divided up into the uh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Kedavim. Went through what the books of the Torah were, what the books of the Prophets were, and here we see the Twelve, right? They were the last, and then we said that um, in the Hebrew Bible, the 12 is one book. These were written on one scroll. These were treated as one, like one single book, not individual um, books as we do in our Bible. The Ketuvim covered these books. All right. And then we started to speak about who were the prophets? We asked the questions, who were they? What did they do? What is prophecy in both form and function? And finally, how should we read the prophets? We ended at the how should we read the prophets, but quickly going over what we went through last time, who were they? We said they were seers, musicians and singers, counselors, and God's spokesmen, God's spokespeople. And we covered... Uh, this verse, these verses from Samuel, dealing with the seers, uh, musicians and singers. We read a number of passages, but 
specifically this one, 1 Chronicles 25, 1-3. We see more of David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service, some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Judithun, uh, who were to prophesy with lyre, harps, and cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service was, etc. right? So they prophesied with instruments. These were the temple singers. They were counselors, right? They counseled not only kings, but they also counseled God. God brought them into his heavenly council, and God listened to his prophets. We use Amos as an apt example of this, right? Amos 7, 1 to 9, we read the, that section. God says he's going to bring this judgment, and Amos said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord relented and said, I won't do that. I'll do something else time and time again in that section. So, and this is how we normally think of the prophets, right? As God's spokesman. See? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They were God's spokespeople. That's why they say things like, Thus saith the Lord, etc. Right? They are speaking forth the words of God. So what did they do? They warned Israel and Judah of impending judgment and called them to repent when they were in sin. They encouraged Israel and Judah to remain faithful and promise blessings for obedience. And we said all these things here was based upon the Sinaitic covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant the blessings and cursings section of the covenants. So they, prophets can be called God's covenant attorneys. Right? They went before the people, and when they were doing well, when they were obeying the stipulations of the covenant, they encouraged Israel and Judah to remain faithful. When they were disobedient to the stipulations of the covenant, they warned Israel and Judah of impending judgment and called them to repentance called them to be faithful to the covenant. They also announced that God was going to enact the stipulations uh, or the punishments, the penalties of the covenant when they were in sin. So they also led in praise and worship. We saw that with the temple singers. And they revealed to the people God's plan of ultimate redemption, right? Namely Christ. So we looked at those things last week, and you can listen to it um, if you'd like. So this is where we ended here. How should we read the prophets? Simple answer. Simple, simple answer. Carefully. Very carefully. We should. We should go through them with a fine tooth comb. Okay. We should read the prophets the same way we read any other book. Right? We should read it just like we read any other book. Like, uh, pick a book, and how you read that is how you should read the Bible itself. Because the Bible is itself literature. It is a very high form of literature. It's very high art. I mean, it is God's word, right? So he gave us a book or a collection of books. And we look at human authors. We look at people like William Shakespeare, etc. Wow, this is excellent. This is fantastic. This is wonderful art. Well. God wrote this, right? So it's that much higher. <laughs> so we should read it that way and be mindful of that. Remember that we're actually reading 
a book. Okay? That's very, very important to our understanding of what God is saying to us. Um, it's a very high form of literary art, and because of this fact, we need to understand that the literary genres of books or even passages that we are reading, um, we have to look at those genres so that we can better interpret what the text is saying. Right? In Hosea, we're going to see that Hosea is mostly poetry. However, there's, at the, the first three chapters are prose, and that affects how you read it. His poetry is different than prose, right? Poetry is more symbolic, etc. Okay, we need to uh, be aware of the literary devices and formulas and structures that um, these genres employ, right? We pay attention to allusion, simile, metaphor, chiasm, inclusio, rhetorical repetitions, poetic repetition, and things like that. We have to be very aware of the literary devices that are employed in each of these genre forms. And when we look at repetition, because we're going to be looking at a lot of repetition, again, there's different kinds of repetition. There is poetic repetition, and there's rhetorical repetition. Now, dealing with the prophets, answering this question more particularly, uh, because of who the prophets were and what they did, they employed two very distinct and often contradictory modes of communication. Um, because they sought to persuade the people of God to one course of action or another, they were definitely masters of rhetoric. Um, yes. And then the other form that they used was poetry. What we're going to look at some of, I'm sorry, I got to go through this again. I had a very long, long week, uh, so I didn't really get a chance to go through this whole thing with fine tooth and expand it as much as I would have liked. Um, but be that as it may, we'll go through this just the same, okay? Uh, I'll read, I'll, I'll use, we're gonna use Amos. We just went through Amos, so this is good. It should be fresh in everyone's minds. As an example of rhetoric, he is a master rhetorician, all right? Check this out, this is very cool. This is, this is um, rhetorical repetition. Uh, if you can't read it, I'll read it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bars of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. So the people of Aram will go to exile, uh, go will go exiled to Kir, says the Lord. That right there is what we would call an inclusio, right? It begins, thus says the Lord, it ends, says the Lord. An inclusio is brackets, a statement with similar, um, a similar saying. Thus says the Lord, says the Lord, right? So right here, in between there, that's one thought, that's one idea, Right? That's what we call, in terms of a literary device, an inclusio. So when we read that and we see something like that, we know one thought has been completed. Now he's going to go on and he's going to repeat himself. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it will consume her citadels. 
I will also cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord. Another inclusio. But it's repeated. This is rhetorical repetition. He's building an argument and he's repeating himself to get his audience engaged and get his audience involved so that they get the idea. He's being very clear in what he's saying. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, right? So we see two different um, rhetorical and literary devices being employed already. Now, as we go on, we'll see some more. Thus says the Lord, and it begins again, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, and will not revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadels, right? And then it stops. There's no, thus says the Lord. This is left open-ended. We need to pay attention to things like that. There's no inclusio here. This is left open. And there's a reason for that. And we should think and ponder why that is. Why does he break his, you know, the way he's speaking? And then it begins again. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Okay? And he goes on from there. And here uh, leaves it open again. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the, for the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders, etc. And he ends it again with, says the Lord. So here we have another inclusio. Right? So this thought is now finished. These two are left open. This one's finished. We need to ponder why that would be. And we can, if we go and use other books to inform our thinking, we know that Tyre, the judgment of Tyre, comes much later. Remember, he, Amos, was writing or was prophesying about the coming judgment from God that he was going to bring through the hand of Assyria. Tyre didn't really suffer at the hands of Assyria. They suffered at the hands of Babylon and later Greece. So this is left open. They're not included with the judgment that he's prophesying. Okay? So uh, we go on from there, and we see, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because he burned their bones, etc. Right? Says the Lord. So this is now one completed idea as well. But we see the same repetition. We're getting engaged. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord, etc. And again, here, it's open-ended. Judah didn't suffer at the hands of Assyria either. They suffered at the hands of the Babylonians, which came later. So we see here, uh, again, an open-ended judgment. Hopefully that makes sense, right? See, this is what a careful reading of the text does, but we see this building of a rhetorical argument, and he's going to hit them now hard. He's got his audience engaged, his audience involved. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, for three transgressions of Ammon and for four, for three transgressions of for Tyre and for four, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, etc. Right? And now here comes the kicker, because he's prophesying to the northern kingdom. I know this is small. I know it's going to be hard to read. I'll read it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. See, he has them engaged, he has them involved, and bam, he hits them hard 
with his with the this is the last of this, and you see um, he's prophesying to the people of Israel. So he builds them up, builds them up, builds them up, and then hits them. For three transgressions of it for Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the heads of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to, uh, to the same girl in order to profane my holy name on garments uh, taken as pledges. They stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, uh, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It was uh, I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness for 40 years, etc., goes on, declares the Lord. See, it's an inclusio. This judgment is coming and it's coming now. It is not open-ended. Right? So, this is an example of a rhetorical argument and paying attention closely to the literary devices that are used, we have a better picture of what the prophet's actually saying and how he's saying it. Okay, hopefully that makes some sense. Does that make sense? See, we see, so we see uh, literary devices that are used, and this is an example of wonderful rhetoric that is employed by uh, the prophet here. So he uses this, this, this uh, rhetorical style in order to drive home the need for Israel to repent, Okay. It is definitely an artful use of rhetorical repetition, right? For three transgressions and for four. And he uses the familiar formula, thus says the Lord, uh, against the nations, right? And as we said, he drew his hearers in, and they went, when they were comfortable and happy with what was being said, he hit them square between the eyes and brought the judgment around to them. And by using the same refrain, he used to condemn the nations, Right? He's using the same refrain over and over, over again, for three transgressions uh, and for four. Um, and he hits Israel with that. He's saying to them that they are no better than the Gentile nations around about them. Right? They're all lumped in. They're not special. They are acting like the pagan nations around them. Okay? Hopefully that also makes sense. He's saying to them, you are no better than these uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, so we see more um, than what's just being said. We see more than just the words when we pay attention to these literary devices, right? So this goes into how we interpret uh, scriptures and how we need to pay very close attention to what is being said, right? Now, on the other side of this, they, the prophets were also poets. They used poetry, right? Rhetoric is the art of persuasive speech. Poetry is the exact opposite of that. Poetry does not seek to persuade, right? A poem does not seek to persuade, but to reveal. The poem tries to call attention to the unnoticed, and to conceal or confound the obvious. Okay, this is a quote um, from somewhere, Jacobson, I think. Right? 
Jacobson's What is Poetry? Uh, these, two, uh, these two literary forms are in direct opposition to each other, and yet the prophets employ them both. And sometimes they do it simultaneously. It's actually complex. It's uh, very difficult to read the prophets sometimes because we don't really know what's going on, but we have to read them carefully and pay attention uh, very closely to what's being said in a given pericope. Right? A pericope is just a, a portion of the text. Right? So let's see here. Uh, yes, so now on the other side of rhetoric, uh, that the prophets used, they were some of the greatest poets that ever put uh, pen to paper. Poetry, by its very nature, as I said, is the exact opposite of rhetoric. Rhetoric, again, is persuasion. And as such, the first rule for rhetoric is to be very clear and unambiguous in word choice to make sure the message gets understood, right? You're trying to persuade people of something. Poetry, on the other hand, often seeks to use ambiguous words so that more than one meaning could be arrived at. And sometimes um, the word choice is so ambiguous that it leaves the hearers puzzled over what's being said. Rhetoric seeks to use its devices in such a way that the words and devices are not noticed, right? So that it's the message that's being um, thought about. Well, as poetry uses words and devices that call attention to the words and devices themselves, right? So in poetry, you're meant to think about the words themselves. In rhetoric, you're not. You're meant to think about the message, what's being um, said. So let's see here. Right. Or the reason that you would do that, the reason that you would call attention to the words and devices themselves, it would allow the hearers uh, to ponder a specific word or a line in a poem. This is uh, because poetry is revelatory in its very nature. Again, rhetoric seeks to persuade and poetry seeks to reveal. Uh, poetry's meaning is meant to be pondered so as to reveal different layers of the things it is describing. That's what it means when we say it's revelatory. Um, and as such, uh, it's very emotionally charged and is meant to stir up the passions in the hearers. A masterfully crafted rhetorical treatise on love will not have the same impact on the readers as a love sonnet, right? It doesn't stir the emotions the same way. Now, I don't... Remember, yes, okay. Yeah, this comes from Roman Jacobson's What is Poetry? Poeticity is present when the word is felt as a word and not a mere representation of the object being named or an outburst of emotion. When words and their composition, their meaning, their uh, external and inner form acquire a weight and value of their own instead of referring indifferently to reality. Now, what he means by that is what we were just saying, like the, the word itself matters. The word is meant to be felt. The word is meant to um, drive home, um, well, it's meant to conjure up in, in the hearer an idea, right? It's not meant to just point to bare reality, right? 
I could write a poem about the chair or I could describe the chair technically, okay? That will have two different effects. Hopefully that makes sense, all right? Okay, we're gonna use Milton's Paradise Lost as an example. Yeah, poetry allows the author to communicate on, on different levels of meaning simultaneously through rhythm, wordplay, antiphonal uh, parallelism. We're gonna go through some antiphonal parallelism. All right, we're gonna talk about that because it's very important, it's very cool. Uh, because of this normal rule, because of that, because of what we were just saying, because of the way they use words in poetry, normal rules of syntax and grammar don't always necessarily apply uh, to poetry. Um, and it allows the author to convey a range of ideas with a single word. And we're gonna use Milton, the opening lines of Milton's Paradise Lost to illustrate this, okay? Of man's first, actually, you know what? Will someone read this? Go ahead. Very good, very good. So you, you hear how you read that? Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our row. Well, the way he read that, what do you guys think fruit means here? That word, that little word fruit, what does it mean in terms of how he read it? Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. What do you guys think? What does fruit mean? Sin. Good. Very good. That's exactly what it means the way he read it. This can also be read of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. What does the fruit mean the way I read it? of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. What does the word mean the way I read it? Exactly. See, this word fruit here is doing double duty. It is two very distinct and very different meanings. And Milton here is able to convey two very different ideas with one word through poetic form. See? You see what I'm saying? About how in poetry, like the word itself is meant to be pondered and it can have multiple layers of meaning. When Milton does something like this, or when a poet does something like this, they can use words in a way that you have to sit and you have to think about them. You have to ponder them because there are different layers of meaning, right? So you do the same thing when we read the scriptures, when we read especially the poetry books, right? I know it could be kind of difficult because uh, we don't read Hebrew or Greek uh, and we miss out on a lot of things. But generally speaking, our translators do a good job about how they break up lines uh, and whatnot. Um, so this is, to me, this is fascinating. This is very interesting. And this helps tremendously when we look at uh, the scriptures. Go ahead, what's up? Yeah, see how he uses uh, his syntax here? See how he does it? He puts a comma here and a comma here, but he ends his line here. 
thus allowing the word fruit to do double duty, right? To have two different meanings. And it's done intentionally by the poet. And this is just John Milton. He was a phenomenal poet. However, he's not God. When God does something, you know, it's even more rich. Okay. So this comes from, actually, yeah, we'll read this one. Gerald Morris, right? Uh, this is in this little book right here that I got, uh, Prophecy, Poetry, and Hosea, right? A poem sets up a word's field of meaning consisting of all the meanings, uh, deformations, and connotations which it assumes during the course of the poem. And we saw that with Milton right there with the word fruit. He sets up a field of meaning for a single word, right? It has, in the context of the poem, of course, uh, it doesn't, like, fruit can mean a number of different things. It could mean, like, um, the fruit of your loins, right? It could mean your child, etc. cetera. Uh, but in that context of that poem, it didn't mean that. That would be outside the uh, course of the poem. However, it, within the course of the poem, the word has a range of meanings, two specifically in that context. All right. I want to read one little thing from here, just because I find this so interesting, so helpful, and I couldn't say it any better. Okay. Um, finally, having more than one order of meaning, a poem has a double weighted, uh, a double weight of meaning. One word in a poem may bear the weight of both syntactic and rhythmic stress, as we saw with. Uh, this example, the syntactic stress would be where the commas are broken, right? Where the commas break things up. The rhythmic stress would be where the lines end, okay? Um, and then, uh, let's see here. Uh, one word in a poem may bear the weight of both syntactic and rhythmic stress, may be elevated by alliteration, assonance, uh, or, or rhyme. And in a generic context in which all of this bears equal weight, may acquire a significance to which no word in any other genre may attain. Poetry, says Graham, is not less verbal, but more than usually verbal. It is hyperverbal. Its words are charged with extra significance and extra relevance. They are heavy with meaning, so that they require more attention than usual for, the, uh, for interpretation. And we see that with this simple example here, and we're going to be going through this when we go through Hosea a little bit, because I do have to keep this like a survey, all right? <laughs> but my goal is more to teach you guys how to read, all right? I think this is more helpful, more fruitful than me just, you know, reading it and interpreting it for you, okay? So you guys can read any passage, any book of the Bible and understand what's being said, okay? So because the prophets sought to both persuade and to reveal, they employed both of these literary genres, right? Rhetoric and poetry. However, some prophets use more rhetoric, like Amos, and we used him as a great example of uh, po uh, prophetic rhetoric, that rhymes. Uh, and some used more poetry, like Hosea. As we said, Hosea is almost entirely poetry, save for the first three uh, chapters. He uses that almost strictly, which makes it very difficult to read and interpret. Uh, and we shall uh, see much of his wordplay and poetic repetition 
um, once we dive into the book itself. All right, so this is also pretty cool. We're going to go through this. We've got some time. Man, i got to like really pick up the pace here. All right. Yeah, so rhetoric. Did I? What did I just do? Yeah, okay. All right. Rhetoric lays an argument in a logical and orderly fashion, right? as we saw when we read, went through Amos. Um, one statement logically following the next. Poetry is an uh, antiphonal. Antiphonal. Blah, blah. Uh, one line answering the next, right? Um, do you guys know what that word means? Just uh, to be clear, because I could clarify. Maria does. What does it mean, Maria? Antiphonal. No, not antithetical. Antiphonal. Uh, it means a call and response. It means like it's a, it's a used in music a lot, right? Uh, in high liturgy, you'll have a core, like if you have a choir, you'll have one uh, group, like let's say the bass singing one part and then the, the soprano singing another, etc. You know, you'll have a call and response within it, right? And poetry is very antiphonal. One line answering the next. This is why Hebrew poetry is marked by parallelisms, because it's uh, parallelisms um, in and of themselves are antiphonal. Let's go through. One, okay? This one is pretty cool. Psalm 136, everybody knows this, right? We're going to just read the first nine verses. So I'm going to read the first section, and you guys are going to answer, right? This is antiphonal worship, right? You guys are going to, after everything I say, you're going to say, for his mercy endures forever, if you can't read it, because I know the font is kind of small. So, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Beautiful. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who my wisdom made the heavens. To him who laid out the earth above the waters. To him who made great lights. To the sun to rule by day. And the moon and stars to rule by night. Beautiful, right? This is antiphonal worship. This is how poetry is meant to be read. Okay, there's a call and response, and and in terms of worship, um, it's very participatory. You know, we all participate in worship. Now we're going to do one that's not quite as clear. Okay, Psalm 37. Can you guys read this? It's clear. Okay, good. So, at the commas, I'm going to start. You guys are going to finish the sentence. Okay. Do not fret because of evildoers. Right, you see how those are parallel? Right? You guys are expanding on the idea that I laid down. Right? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass. Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. Right, good. These lines are parallel, right? All of them are parallel. This is, this is you know, poetic parallelism, see? And you guys were expanding on the idea that I had laid down, right? It's the same idea, just elaborated, okay? And this is, that's what antiphonal means, right? Now, what's really cool, actually, we're going to do one more thing.
and probably end there, which is good, actually, good. That's perfect, because we're, next we're going to get into the background of the book and jump right into the book itself. So we'll end with this. All right. Now, everybody, I've been doing this with Krista. This is a lot of fun. This is pretty cool. Go to Proverbs chapter 10. Listening to a guy, his name is uh, John Higgins. He has a YouTube channel, The Bible is Art. If you guys get a chance, check it out. It is really, really cool, really worth your time. But in an interview I was listening to, was going through the Proverbs. And um, Proverbs are examples of Hebrew parallelism, right? It's written in a poetic form. Now, what's What's under, what we uh, learn from the Proverbs, obviously we learn wisdom, etc. but how do we learn wisdom? This is, this is really, really cool, okay? Let's start with the very first one. We'll do, we'll do this antiphonally, okay? Actually, can we do this antiphonally? How many, what, what translations do you guys have? <laughs> All right, who has the ESV? Excellent, perfect. So those with the ESV, read after me, okay? A wise son makes a... Glad father. Beautiful, right? Okay, you see, those lines can be read antiphonally. They answer each other. There's a call and there's an answer, right? Okay, now, when you read a proverb, when you read any sort of parallelism, when you read this, okay, when you're interpreting it now, the first step is to just understand the simple statements, okay? A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Okay. We can understand those two simple statements. Now the trick is that the understanding comes in, the wisdom comes from, and this is how you develop wisdom, understanding the connection between those two lines. What makes them one proverb? What makes this one line, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness, right? What makes that one statement? Or uh, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Ponder what makes that one statement. Why are those ideas parallel, okay? Let's do another one in terms of the Proverbs. Let's do Proverbs, let's do the second one, 10-2. Uh, Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. We can understand those two simple statements, right? Treasures of wicked profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. That's pretty clear. Now the question is, wisdom comes from pondering and understanding what makes those two ideas one, right? So when you read the Proverbs, when you read any sort of lines in scripture that seem disjointed or disconnected or whatever, sit and ponder and understand um, why those two ideas are brought together and are one proverb or one idea, okay? That's where wisdom comes from. First, we understand the two statements, but we start to develop wisdom when we understand the connection between those two lines, what makes them one. Scripture is meant to be ruminated upon and pondered. It's not meant to be read quickly. You know, we read things very fast. 
everything is written so that it can be read quickly. I mean, we text for crying out loud for so many, um, or, tw or tweets or whatever, with so many characters you're allowed to use. Everything's meant to be done quick, quick, quick. Scripture's not meant to be read that way. It's meant to be pondered and ruminated upon. Okay, so when we read, we need to try to understand the connections between couplets or lines. Um, so we have to read very carefully and very observantly. And we can do this not just with, um, would we get good at it? We can do this not just with, you know, uh, a line in a, in a psalm or a proverb or whatever else, but you were able to do this with the entire scriptures. When scripture so fills us, we're able to see connections from Genesis to Revelation, right? That's where real wisdom comes from. Okay? Because again, this is one book written by God. These things are, are one. I don't know what else to say other than that, you know? As we read it, the, like, uh, each writer draws upon the richness of the others, okay? Matter of fact, when we, read the, uh, when we read the Gospels, do we realize that pretty much everything Jesus said was said in the Old Testament? He's pretty much quoting Old Testament books, right? He's quoting the prophets most of the time, pretty much everywhere. Whenever he opens his mouth, he's quoting scripture, you know? Uh, but we're able to see those connections when we ruminate and when we uh, learn when scripture so richly dwells in us. All right. So, any thoughts or comments or questions about what we went through today? No? Is this helpful? Good. Excellent. All right. So, you guys are understanding where I'm going, right? Awesome. You're picking what up when I'm laying down. Fantastic. That's what I like to hear. Okay. So, hopefully, this is this is helpful. Um, I find this to be fascinating. This is really cool. Uh, and so next week, we're going to jump right into Hosea. We're going to look at the background of Hosea, and then we're going to get into the text, okay? All right, so let's pray, and we'll close. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for uh, your word, Father. We thank you for the richness and the depths of it, Father God. We pray that we would be careful readers of your word, and we would be um, those who not only hear it, but also do it, that it would so richly dwell in us that we would be changed and more conformed to the image of your Son, Father God. And uh, now as we go to hear your word preached, Lord, we pray that it would change us, that it would move us and shape us and make us more like the image of your Son, Father God. We pray that we would worship you today with clean hands and a pure heart, that you'd be pleased with everything that is said and done here, Father God. Um, Lord, again, we do thank you and give you all praise and thanks. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand.
I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Amen.